Hey guys, I uh, thought I would throw a little shout out to something that I uh, I saw on Kickstarter and I thought some people in this audience might be interested in. Uh, there's a uh, Kickstarter uh, for Endangered Alphabets and it's uh, hoping to uh, start printing some books in endangered writing systems in Bangladesh. And I'm a backer and... As I'm uh, recording this right now, there, the project has seven days to go, and it's $800 shy of its goal. Now, I don't... Now, a lot of people probably saw me promoting this in other arenas, but I thought I'd use what tiny, tiny microphone I have to, to point it out. So, I'll link that in the show notes, and... Uh, and see what you guys think. I'm not getting paid for this or anything. I'm just thought this was cool and wanted to share it with you guys. <laughs> Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, up in New Jersey, again, is Mike Lentine. Hello. And over in sunny California, we have David J. Peterson, who is not responding right now. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Is it just your goal to screw up my introductions, David? They, they sound so smooth. <laughs> and you don't you're like smooth. You're like radio ready, man. So you know, <laughs> I got throw make... a couple curveballs in there. Yeah, man. I got to keep you on your toes. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, by the uh, by the by the way, I'm periodically going to be doing that throughout the show. So just be ready. <laughs> uh, am I going to have to go through the show and edit it, edit that out? <laughs> what is that supposed to be? Is that a new word in your in a conlang of yours? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a new conlang. The conlang it's pretty cool. I've been working on it for a while. It's called So it's a tonal language probably. Uh you'd think that, but no, in fact actually it's a it's a um it's a monolexemic language. Um I've been working on the vocabulary a lot. So, for example, I can there's tell. See? And and that varies from Can I hear the first one again? Oh, totally different. I totally yeah, hear. Yeah. Good yeah. on you. Very good. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> in other totally unrelated stuff, uh, I uh, went to the farmer's market today, and I actually did uh, buy a bunch of local Wisconsin cheese because cool. I'm a little crazy. Yeah. Have you tried it yet? Uh, I was really curious. Um, I tried one. Let me look at the thing so I can... It was... I got this... One, it's it's a sheep milk cheese. Okay. Uh, it's called aged Tomei. So Tomei, I guess. But did you see the sheep? You know, no, I did not see the sheep. Okay. Well, um, just taking it on faith. All right. <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't know. It's it's very very sharp, and um, it's got sort of like um uh, a film around it 
I don't know if that's part of the 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 fungal culture or something or what. No, no, it's probably wax. It's it's probably wax. No, I I I it it was it was given in in wax paper, but it has like sort of this powdery stuff on on it. So I don't okay. know if that was maybe it serves the same purpose as wax because I've had I I've gotten cheeses that were sealed in wax, so mm-hmm. mm. uh, it may have sort of a similar purpose or something. I don't know what it is, um, but. Not my favorite, actually, but uh, that was the one that I tried today, and I also tried a a uh, a, a um, cheddar that I got that was pretty good. Um, but anyway, this is not a podcast about cheese. I just wanted buy? to kind of what is it a buy? <laughs> buy? Yeah, is it a buy? Should we buy this? Um, the tome? Um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Listen, just send me a little bit, and I will tell everybody next week, okay? <laughs> uh, let's see if I can post that. I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, so today we have a a topic that uh, David actually kind of insisted on. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> a very interesting topic. I will warn people we're going to get a little bit into some... Uh, some uh, linguistic theory, which is not something that we've gotten really deep into before, but there's a really good reason for for delving into it this time, and um, hopefully we won't explode too many heads. Uh, so our topic is it's a I'm calling this a practicum topic. It's the pitfalls of frameworks. So essentially, by framework, we're talking about um, these sort of models that linguists use to analyze languages. Uh, we're going to talk about, we're probably going to talk about, uh, you know, morphemes, uh, morphemic analysis, phonological rules, all kinds of things that, uh, we, well, let's, let me say it first. Let's not, argue about which which theories are more likely or which theories you think are true reflections or not so much, but just talk about the frameworks themselves because I don't think we want to get into like theory debates, but we do want to tell you a little bit about what using some of these tools uh sort of the precautions you might want to take when using some of these tools. So, David, you have lots of notes, so why don't you kind of take it away? Uh, okay. So, uh, first and foremost, though, before before we get into anything, I think it is, uh, it's very important to mention that uh, what we're talking about here, I guess what we have in mind is somebody who's sitting down to create a naturalistic conlang, you know, shall we say. Yes. So, you know, obviously, if you are doing you know, a personal conlang, then you do whatever seems right to you, whatever seems best to you. Uh, and the extent to which, you know, naturalism enters into it is exactly as much as you want it to, or as little as you want it to. Mm-hmm. So this really only applies, a lot of this is really only going to apply to somebody who's trying to create a, a naturalistic conlang, a conlang that looks like something that we could find in the real world. 
um, which uh, you know a number of us do. It's I think it's it's wrong. It's wrong. These have been wrongly called art langs. I think art lang, the term art lang is much bigger than a naturalistic con lang, but nevertheless, um, you know, uh, we're stuck with it. So um, first, I, I wanted I, to kind of oh, go ahead. Oh, I I would just add also there are also reasons why you might want to use specific frameworks in a conlang. Maybe you are making it for experimental purposes, or you may actually develop your own weird alien framework for uh, a uh, an engelang or something. So, yeah, it, this is very much something that we're talking about with people who whose goal is making a naturalistic language, which I think all three of us, to some degree, are interested in. Yes. Right. Okay, so uh, first, to kind of give you a basic idea of why we're coming at this, um, a linguistic framework, which is uh, basically a way, that, uh, a way that linguists analyze natural languages, is uh, first and foremost a tool. And so the overall message uh, that I want to convey is that tools do make some things easier they also make other things more difficult, and um, and if you stick to the, just you know a single tool, it will make certain things uh, seem almost impossible. Um, and a nice analogy, I think, is um, uh, silverware. So, for example, you know we have forks and knives and spoons. Uh, there's a reason that you eat soup with a spoon and not a fork. Uh, now, imagine if that you only had a fork. And so then basically you were trying to, you know, go after spoons with a fork, you know, just a broth spoon, not like a, a stew. Um, and, you know, you'd be like, gosh, I wish there was something, you know, easier to do with this, you know, but there was nothing. That was the only utensil in the world. Uh, we would probably stop eating soup. Either that or just, you know, pick up the bowl and drink it, uh, which to me, I don't know, it just seems, I mean, I know it's done. I know it's done, but... <laughs> I just can't imagine. I just can't imagine it. Anyway, um, um, and you can if we if we actually go to an, to the other side. If you think about um, Japan, you know, like the main utensil there has been chopsticks. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at a lot of Japanese cuisine, it's often presented in such a way that it would be easy to eat with chopsticks. So it's like they still yes. have they still have steak, you know, like we do. But when you order at a restaurant and it's presented to you, it's cut up into little strips. So that, you know, you can pick it up in bite-sized chunks and eat it with chopsticks. And that's kind of like a direct effect of using chopsticks as the main, um, you know, implement there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so... Well, there's an argument to be made about causality of that, but this is not an episode about uh, cooking or eating utensils. So I'll leave that alone. <laughs> <laughs> Though I, Anyway... I have to say, I, I am pretty sure that, that cows don't start. They don't come in strips. <laughs> no, but uh, there's, there's, there's sort of arguments <laughs> a, 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 about, uh, a, about cultural uh, beliefs about food. But let's, let's uh, leave that alone and get back uh, into um, linguistic stuff. So All what right. what can we talk about sort of... To, to get people back into what, uh, what kind of linguistic frameworks, uh, can have, kind of, um, problems you can have with these analytical frameworks. Okay. So to start off with one that I think, um, most everybody will be familiar with, 
there is a, a there is a very standard uh, type of notation that's used to describe uh, phonological and morphological rules. It's uh, the A to B in the environment of C and D type of rule. Um, and what this kind of uh, little terminology does is it allows you to describe uh, certain common uh, historical and synchronic sounds that we see all over the place. Um, so one from uh, Italian, um, I'm still not sure if this is taken over completely or if it's in free variation, but if you have a word that's underlyingly um, K-A-S-A, shall we say, casa, the uh, S will become a Z because it occurs in between two vowels, and so you will come out as casa, right? Mm-hmm. I think you can still say casa, can you? Anybody know in Italian? Is it like a dialectical uh, I don't speak thing? Italian, so. I don't think that it sounds more Spanish. I know Spanish doesn't have that uh, vo- voicing process, but I, 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 I don't know about Italian. You know, Spanish has a uh, yeah, no, has yeah, a well, Spanish has a different one. No, 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 no. He's saying that it's voiceless in Spanish, but I pretty sure I was yeah. pretty sure you could get the voiceless one in Italian too. Like it wasn't a hard and fast rule, but anyway. For our purposes, let's pretend that it's hard and fast. So underlyingly, we say that it's casa, and then on the surface, it comes out as casa. And basically, the way that we represent this rule is you have this little notation that has a C, stands for consonant. Then you have a greater than sign, like a little arrow. Uh, and then you, we use our handy feature notation. says So the consonant goes to plus voice. Uh, in the environment of, so it's a little slash, and then we have V underscore V, and that means in between two vowels. So in other words, a consonant will become voiced uh, in between two vowels. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, it's, it's kind of interesting, the history of this here. Uh, these rules came up, you know, at a time when people were using typewriters. And so uh, something that was actually given credence for a long while in linguistics, all the way through the 70s, was that if your kind of framework or if your rules used uh, a smaller number of keystrokes, it was more preferable. Mm. The, the idea being that these rules ultimately, like, you know, if you have two frameworks and they predict the same amount of stuff, the one that has less written in it, the one that has less formal machinery, will be the one that's closer to psychological reality. Um, but really, it was just to save on ink. Because, you know, everybody hated typing. So this is why you'll see rules like, you know, a consonant goes to plus voice in between two vowels. Where you say, well, does that just mean any consonant? It's like, well, uh, the idea is that it implicitly uh, only talks about voiceless ones. The other one that applies vacuously. Yes, yes. There you go. So, so yeah, like, (laughs) you could say that, yes, a voiced consonant is voicing in between two vowels because that's what it does anyway. It doesn't really have any other way of showing up. Um, Anyway. So that's the, that's the machinery that's been used to describe the rule, right? And it still serves. I, you know, it's, it's still widely used in linguistics. There, there's really nothing wrong with it. It's good uh, kind of explanatory rule. Um, there is a problem with it, which is if you start with just this rule, um, there's nothing in the rule that tells you, for example, why this should be motivated. So... Um, with the, with the Italian example, casa, going to casa, uh, phonetically, there's a reason that this change happens. And there's a reason that this change happens 
all you know all over the world in all kinds of languages, uh, which is uh, vowels are typically voiced. Um, they are you know in most environments in most languages vowels are voiced, and so if you have a word like casa, what your vocal folds are doing is they're starting off unvoiced to do the k, voicing to do the a, devoicing to do the s, and voicing again to do the a. Um, it's simpler if you just have your vocal folds keep on vibrating right through that S because then, you know, your, your features there, they're just doing one thing. And so as a result, it's kind of easier to pronounce, you know, casa as casa. There's just a vocal fold vibration the whole way through. I mean, it's not impossible to do it. Obviously we have words like casa and languages all over the place. Uh, It's just something that can crop up. It's something that can Mm -hmm. happen. Uh, It's phonetically motivated. Um, But the way that the rule is written there's no none of that phonetic information is in there. Uh, that that detail isn't in there. Thus, you can actually use the rule in very counterintuitive ways. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I and I gave a, a couple of examples here. Like one is that uh, <laughs> uh, what's the silly one? Oh yeah, yeah. A p goes to clag in between e and u. I mean, yeah. based based on the way the rule is written, <laughs> you can do that. And so we have a word like kipu which actually, uh, underlyingly, is kipu, which actually surfaces as kikharugu, whereas yeah. kipe comes out as kipe. So, I mean, you just look at this and you know, that's just stupid. It's completely wrong. It's completely unmotivated. Um, but there's nothing about this, uh, this kind of mini framework that says there's something wrong with this rule, right? There's nothing uh, in there. Now, now we, should, we should say that this particular one, I think people can sort of defeat some of the problems by knowing a little bit about linguistics and knowing a little bit about um, what motivates sound changes. But yeah. it is, it's sort of a, a good example of how, of how sort of your notation and stuff should not necessarily, you should avoid having notational um, devices determine how you're making a, a conlang. Um, right. And this is probably something I'm going to repeat a li- uh, um, at other times, but uh, I'm going to say at the first place, one thing that I sort of believe is important when you're doing these things is make stuff, then analyze it. These are analytical tools. These are not, um, these are not sort of, uh, tools for making conlangs. So, uh, this particular one, you know, you could think about, okay, I want assimilation here. I want, uh, I want nasals to ha- to, uh, you, I want, uh, homorganic nasals, uh, before the corresponding stop. I want these things. And then you can write out your rules after you've figured out some things about your language. Um, or you can, uh, you know, similar ideas, you know, make up a few words before you figure out your phonology, that kind of thing. Is that how you usually do yours? Um, I try to sort of, I work back and forth a little bit, so. When I do them, I mean, I, I don't necessarily just go out and, you know, do all the forms, but I think we might talk about forms later on um, in notes, but... I kind of do work from the framework. I don't know if that's because I'm, you know, I know, you know, I'm not going to do P 
it goes to Hlarg in between E and U. Um, I I think it helps to have somewhat of a background of how sounds are related. So maybe you can say, okay, well they they assimilate assimilate in place articulation or you know uh, front vowels go with front vowels or any kind of there's some sort of string tied together rather than having completely counterintuitive unnatural changes. Unless you're into unnatural unpredictable changes like that, then by all means go crazy. Yeah, but that, but that's then actually, like even what I was going to say that's actually kind of the point. And that's really why I wanted to start with this one, because I think um, a lot of people, uh, at least if people have gotten into conlanging in a little bit, um, the phonology end of it is much easier to understand than, uh, than other stuff. And so they really get it, right? And so it's, it's obvious to, to see, like, you know, how some of these things aren't going to work. Uh, we have, you usually have enough linguistic knowledge to bring to bear on these. It's, uh, it's, it's other places where it becomes more problematic. Uh, but also there, there are other, um, you, you can, like, the idea is that, yes, you know, you don't want to uh, start with this tool and then build your language from it. And this is just a small example. But there are other, I think, I think finer detail examples where you could show this. For example, uh, voice stops going to fricatives after nasals. This seems pretty counterintuitive, but I bet there is a conlanger who might have come up with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, it's it's something that I think I I'm not sure if it's ever happened in any of the world's languages. Um, you know, except in, in extenuating circumstances, like for example, if a if a if a voiced stop goes to a um, a fricative before a high vowel, then you could see you know kandi going to kanzi, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. But it's it's usually not the nasal that's going to trigger that. In fact, it seems completely counterintuitive for the nasal to trigger that. Um, but that's something I think if, um, you know, if, if you weren't, if you didn't have that kind of phonetic background, uh, that's one of those semi-plausible sound changes that one might have come up with if you were just starting with uh, this little bitty framework. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I think uh, one that I, um, that may be a, a sort of an example that you wouldn't necessarily think of uh, immediately being bad was one thing I did when I was, uh, writing up the sound changes from Iurio to Malvis. Um, mm-hmm. one thing I had was basically at some point in the development, uh, retroflex fricatives developed. Mm-hmm. But because I wanted a per- particular word shapes to occur, I had the idea that a retroflex would become just a regular uh, apical uh, fricative. Uh, zh would come to z after a vowel at the end of a syllable. Mm. And Alex Fink actually pointed out to me, like, that doesn't seem motivated in any way. And he actually suggested it might be more realistic if I restricted that only after high vowels did that, did that change happen. And that's what I ended up going with, I'm still, you know, back and forth wondering about it, but... Yeah, you might you might be able to kill it in other ways. Um, mm. I mean, you know, if ultimately that was what you wanted, um, and you just wanted to do it naturally, how might else you do that? Uh, yeah, probably the easiest way would be to go back and then motivate the change uh, to retroflex fricatives uh, from something that followed the fricative. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, um, I could do and, that. And then you and then you'd get apical uh, word finally in all environments. Um, uh, uh, usually it's the R's, but uh, with retroflexes, usually it's the R that comes before that does it, or is it after? Shra. Uh, actually, no, you could do. But then you'd have the R there, so you need the R to disappear, and usually the R disappears if it comes after a vowel, not after a consonant. Uh, that's a little now, tough. could it? Um, I don't know how closely related languages are, but I know like if maybe there were like kind of like with Taiwanese variety of Chinese, the retroflex consonants become they lose the retroflex. So like instead of saying yeah. like well the, the, the yeah well yeah you could just lose retroflexes at all. Entirely, but I want actual. I want to actually to have retroflexes in this Dada language. The original language doesn't have them, um, so that's that's the point. I like your idea, uh, David. So uh, the, as I'm as I may rethink that even again and think about uh, that way of doing it. But anyway, let's move on a little bit on the topic, not sure. sort of dwell on my language. I was just throwing out an example of something that's. Not necessarily as obviously wrong, but once you once you think about it, it's kind of weird. Um, so, um, you, William, or sorry, David, you <laughs> yeah. actually have a, an example of you 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 talk you have in your notes also uh, underspecified segments. Right. Uh, if uh, for p- people who don't know the terminology, uh, an underspecified st- segment is something that is underlyingly, like a sound that underlyingly is not all there. There's some feature of it that you don't, uh, that it's hypothesized that speakers don't know, uh, underlyingly and is only, only appears on the surface after it's gone through some sort of rule. And you actually use your own language as a case study for how this can go wrong. Yeah, and actually, mm-hmm. go ahead. Oh, sorry. Nothing. <laughs> I was just, no, I was just going to say it's like Schrodinger's segment. You know, you don't know until you take it out of the box what it's going to be. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, I think that uh, I think if, if conlangers listen to this story, they they'll probably see something very familiar, uh, especially those that have. Come, uh, come through linguistics. Uh, this basically this is exactly what I did with a language of mine uh, called Juler, which um, if you're one of the old guard conlangers, you'll probably know it. Uh, if you're not, then you don't. Um, but um, so what happened was when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, we did in our um, I think it was I think it was in our phonology class. Uh, this was the first time that I had ever encountered Turkish. Uh huh. And, uh, you know, they gave us a whole big example where we were basically trying to, trying to describe the vowel harmony of Turkish. Uh, and, uh, well, I guess for those that don't know Turkish, Turkish is a vowel harmony language. So, um, uh, Turkish, 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 give me something. Uh, the, um, the ablative of the word for house is evde, whereas the ablative for the word for um, child is uh Chojukda, or I'm sorry, Chojukta. Uh, mm-hmm. So ignore the DT thing. What happens is that after front vowels, the vowel in the ablative comes out as A. After back vowels, it comes out as A. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, uh, you know, that's the way it is throughout the entire language. Um, 
One of the theories that was developed to explain uh, vowel harmony, which you see in all the Turkic languages uh, and in lots of other languages in the world, um, is that uh, speakers, you know, like George was saying, um, don't, they, they don't know for certain what a particular vowel is, usually in a suffix, in some sort of an affix. Um, they know some things about the vowel, but they don't know all things about the vowel until it's actually attached to a word. And the vowels of the word then fill in the rest of the blanks. All right. Um, this was uh, this was called uh, basically these little segments that appear only in affixes are called underspecified segments. Uh, they can be consonants or vowels, uh, but we're going to deal with vowels here. Um, and the reason that they were so attractive is that um, uh, one of the main goals of linguistics is to describe how uh, how new speakers of a language, children, uh, interpret the data that they're given for their own language. Uh, they don't have access to the history of their language. Uh, the theory is that all they have to work with is what they hear, or if you if you follow Chomsky in theories, also some stuff in their head. Um, and so... As a result, um, even if you know what the history of, you know, say, an affix is in Turkish, it doesn't mean anything to a child. They have to be able to explain it just based on what uh, the material is that they have to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as a result, the underspecified vowel theory or segment theory was really attractive because it's like, well, here you're modeling what it is that children know. They know that this vowel, for example, is going to be high but they don't know if it's going to be rounded or front or back until it gets attached to a word and they can fill in those segments. All right. So it works out very neatly and nicely for Turkish. It starts to run into some problems if you get into something like uh, Hungarian and Finnish that have neutral vowels, and it gets even crazier if you start to look at Mongolian. Um, But uh, it works very, very neatly for Turkish. Turkish is just wonderful for linguistics in this way. Um, So anyway, as an undergraduate, I learned about this theory, and, and it was like basically the way that underspecified vowels are represented. Like the low vowel was just a, a, a capital A, and they say this capital A is plus, um, is, sorry, is, is minus high and minus round. And then its final feature, front or back, is an alpha. It gets this alpha from the previous vowel. Mm-hmm. So if the vowel is U, it gets plus, uh, it gets plus front, and so it becomes minus round, uh, minus high, plus front, A, and that's how you fill it out. So I thought this was really cool. And so I went back, and this is uh, you know, just what I did. I, I was really fascinated by Turkish, so I wanted to build a language that kind of um, felt like Turkish. So I was creating Jiler, and I was creating its vowel harmony system. And so what I thought then was, all right, if underspecified vowels can work this way, that is, they'll have at least one feature that's fixed and other features that um, come from a previous vowel, you can actually do a lot more with it than Turkish does. Mm-hmm. Why not? And so I came up with a whole bunch of underspecified vowels. I think I wrote the number here, isn't it? It was like 14 or something? 14. Yeah, 14, 14, 14 underspecified vowels. And so, for example, there's one that I write um, with a capital E, and it's specified as, uh, as, as minus high. Basically, it would be like what Turkish is if it admitted O and Ö into its low vowel harmony. In other words, the rounded vowels, but it doesn't. So that works fine enough. But then there are some really, really strange ones, like this capital X. It would be it'd be best if you could see this. Uh, it'll be a little bit harder to describe. 
But essentially, uh, what it does is um, it's okay. I, I have to kind of think through this because it's really tough. Um, I will I will link to um, your um, Val Harmony page on Jular so people can look at it. So okay, this is okay. I got it. So this is what it does. Okay, so the Val um, is underspecified. And it takes the high and back feature from whatever, whatever the previous vowel is. And then its rounding feature comes from the back feature. So if it's minus back, it's minus round. If it's plus back, it's plus round. Oh. And so it's really weird. And so in this language, Gilles, where you have a lot of rounding harmony, you have this vowel, which comes out as E after E and U. <laughs> All right. So... Um, yeah, that makes no sense. It, it makes absolutely no sense, right? So it's you have this really you, so, and each pair you, you can do the the entire set for the eight vowel system. You have one where it's like, okay, yeah, it makes sense that e would come after e, but no, it doesn't make any sense that that e would come after u, and then that the even more bizarre uh would come after u, right? So it's like yeah. completely unintuitive, but. It makes perfectly sense. It makes perfect sense within the framework of underspecified vowels. Um, that is, if you ignore uh, kind of phonetic and phonological motivation for uh, harmony, you can actually have several different types of harmony working in the same language. So you have height harmony, uh, rounding harmony, uh, back harmony, um, and even the opposite of that, because alpha notation in linguistics allows you to do a negative. So you could have negative alpha something. So you could have a vowel. You could actually have a segment where if something is round, then the vowel that you get is unround and vice versa. Just because this is something that you can describe in the theory of underspecified vowels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of the thing to take away from this is that I think this is what a lot of us do when we're coming up through linguistics uh, in college. We find an idea in a, in a particular language that's really neat. Right. Mm-hmm. And it usually starts out with, you know, linguists observe a phenomena that they find interesting. And so they try to find a way to explain it, a way to make it normal. And so then they come out with this explanation. Then a conlinger season says and starts with that explanation and says, oh, but if you could do that, you could also do this, this, <laughs> this, 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 this and this. And then so, yeah, if you ever linguists, if you ever want to know, like, does my theory work? Just give it to a conlinger and see what they do with it. <laughs> 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 and so, yeah, that uh, to me that that really torpedoes. It really torpedoed underspecified vowels for me. But um, so you know, this is just a kind of a it's a sticky example. But I think if you go and you look at uh, Gieler's vowel harmony uh, really quickly, you can just see how how my thinking shaped the language and how it still, nevertheless, just completely doesn't make sense. Even though I try to invent a historical explanation for it, I did just uh, yeah, yeah, just still doesn't make um, sense. One. <laughs> Uh, one thing that I would say in this case is um, I think this is one of those cases, and obviously this is something you created a long time ago. You've moved far beyond this. I've probably done... I don't think I've done anything worse than this, but I've done some <laughs> weird things. Uh, but uh, like this is one of those places where my idea of make it and then analyze it might have worked better so you could you could have sort of yeah just like taken what your affixes are and 
sort of figured out, um, okay, this affix, um, appears this way after this vowel and this way after this vowel. And then later come back and see, oh, maybe this one could be underspecified or something like that. Right. Rather than um, starting with underspecif with 14 underspecified vowels, which yeah. I think at the first place, if you're doing 14 underspecified vowels, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah. And, and then coming up with really implausibly, um, implausible, uh, combinations like that, that don't make any sense for someone trying to learn the language and then generalize things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think if, uh, if I were trying to do something like that, I think I'd just look at the ordering. Because if you had the the round the vowel harmony, you know, I don't know if the specification occurs before phonological, other phonological processes, or afterwards. So it's kind of uh, in between. You got to figure out not only how it got from point A to point B, but also what which comes first, the chicken or the egg, to give me this wonderful thing at the end. Right. So. Yeah. That that could that could um, that could uh, yeah. Some uh, ordered processes might work, but then. Ordered processes, that's another framework that you could yes, it do is. some weird stuff yeah. with. Absolutely. Uh, but by the way, if you want to see um if you want to see Val Harmony uh done right, I did um uh the Val Harmony for my language Guader, who's uh whose background right now on my website is truly awful. You can you can change it easily. Um that's that's pretty good. It does um ATR and I think uh ATR and rounding harmony. Um and it does it pretty well. It, at this stage, it's it's really um, I've discovered it's really difficult to come up with a unique harmony system that is one that isn't used somewhere in the world. I actually um, did an ATR thing. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it, my recommendation, by the way, if you want to do something that, uh, or at least hope to come up with a language that is unique, is with vowel harmony, is change your vowel inventory. Uh, dive into those central vowels, <laughs> but it's like I've I've just seen so much stuff that's like every time I try to sit down and come up with a vowel harmony system, I'm like oh, well, it's just like that, it's just like that. It's like there's too much. Every they've done everything. Uh, it's pretty good. Well, that's um, that's not necessarily a bad thing because no, like uh, I think one thing that I was uh, I was going to come to later is uh, natural language precedents can help you find things that naturally happen. So mm. you may, if you aren't really concerned about being unique and uh, a unique snowflake, you may just kind of co-op some, uh, some natural languages, vowel harmony system. So um, yeah. if, if that's your, if it, it depends on what you're concerned with, I think Wh- whether you're concerned with your vowel harmony being unique or not, or you're more concerned with both things. Val Harmony is really beautiful, though. I recommend it. Mm-hmm. If, you, if, you've, if you've never tried a Val Harmony language, try it. That's my recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, by the way, so, I, I just wanted to mention, uh, think about where you were going next, stay with that, and then we'll go there right after I say this. But I just thought of another example of a, um, of a really unnatural sound change that I did uh, based on the you know A to B in the environment of C and D rule, um, just because I thought that you could. Uh, this is actually for the first instantiation of Gwader and where it got its name. Uh, so, like, I, I created it for the first time, you know, way back in, like, 2001, 2002, um, and it was terrible. I, I ended up revamping it several years later into the state that it's in now, and it's all right. 
Um, but initially, uh, this was a language that did have vowel harmony, but it had um, uh, three front and three back vowels, you know, uh, E-A-A and then U-O-A, mm-hmm. um, and then I think some rounding. But um, what happened was uh, stops, um, and it had, you know, just the three voiceless and three voice that are usual. Uh, stops became labialized before front vowels. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so so this is why the, it was greater and not gator. Uh, it was uh, it, underlyingly, it's just G. But since it comes before you know an A vowel, it takes a W. Uh, hmm. And I makes know, no this, sense. Yeah, I, I, at the time I thought you know oh yeah because I I, I don't even know I don't, I don't know what my, my what my justification was. Um, I think it was just I thought well it. You know, I, if I can describe it, you could do it, but but no, you you can't. Yeah, I I've been racking my brain recently. I want one of the languages of Iorio to. For some reason, I've I'm stuck on this uh, change that I've heard actually in uh, one at least one Chinese speaker where aspirated p becomes ps, the oh, so yeah. co-articulate p p s. Yeah. And I've been sort of racking my brain, okay, what environments is it likely? It seems like it it's just playing with it in my mouth myself. It seems like it would make more sense in front of high vowels and like yeah, but I'm not entirely sure. So I've been sort of running that through my brain, seeing where where that is a a possible thing and where I can uh uh make it happen. Uh that's actually quite common. Is it? Uh, yeah, a type of sound change. Um, it's it's much more common, you know, with T, obviously. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, but it can happen. I may with, have to. It can happen with voiceless, especially aspirated. Yeah, maybe I kill. I I'll do it with. Yeah, maybe I'll do it with both P and T, mm-hmm. so that um, it's sort of balanced a little bit. I think I don't know. I think it wouldn't make sense for it to happen to P and T and not K. Unless, unless you have something, unless you have something different going on with K, uh, P and K, like the, the labials and velars usually pattern together. Now, if you did the P, would it make more sense to do like a PF because it's, it's at least you know still with labial, not going to the other? Uh, uh, you could do it both ways, but no, I I I remember this specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, where first place? Obviously, you think of as Greek. Um, huh, yeah. Where's William? <laughs> Yeah, I, I should ask William a little bit about this. <laughs> but anyway, that's um, that's just a, a thing that I've been kicking around in my brain, and uh, that's an example of the thinking uh, that you should be talking about. Us sort of going back and forth. Okay, where where does this occur? If I do P, should I necessarily do T and K as well, doing the same change? That kind of stuff. That. That's the the kind of thinking that you should be doing, not necessarily just sitting here. Okay, I'm gonna write a bunch of rules using this format, and uh, I don't really care about the individual rules, what they what they look like, how how likely they are. Um, now, mm-hmm. if you're doing naturalism <clears throat> again, right? But uh, Mike, were you gonna say something? Yeah, before we wander away from this uh, underspecification of segments, um, you mentioned that you can also do it for consonants. But yeah. can you, if you had, like, say what George was saying, for example, if you had a P and underspe- or 
you were under specifying some aspect of a consonant. Mm. How would you do the alpha the alpha you know for plus or minus a feature if you were doing it based on vowels because some they don't have some of the same features. Uh, you'd ha- you'd do it differently. Um, uh, usually, it's not with. Um, uh, usually, it's not with vowels. Um, like you said, yeah, with- it's. But mm-hmm. but no, actually, I do have a I do have an example. I do have an example mm-hmm. um, because there are certain features that vowels and consonants share. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of like them is that kind of. Yes, um, and so for example, you could have you know fairly plausible uh, ru- uh, harmony rule that where. Except here, it's just kind of like it's just an assimilation. It's not really consonant harmony, but like um, you know, you could have a distinction between uh, hya and ch, uh, mm-hmm. so palatal and velar, uh, yeah. that was conditioned by the vowel. But that really is more of just a, a, a common sound change. I think it does happen in yeah. German, in fact, um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. with with ch. Uh, but usually, the place where you see consonant harmony is sibilant consonant har- consonant harmony, where um, yeah. you know. An S will make a sh into an S, or vice versa, so that they're all the same in a word. Yeah, um, the only the only case of a an a an underspecified consonant I've seen is some people um, analyze the uh, the uh, the English plural marker as underspecified, but that's conditioned by the previous consonant, and I'm not sure. How much I buy into that um, that That's analysis? A, that is a real chicken and egg argument. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a little it's a little hard to tell to uh, argue. Let's, but again, we didn't want to argue over different theories. It's it's a little hard to distinct uh, see uh, what's the um, the. Uh, the merits of that vis-a-vis it being underlyingly Z or something, but let's not get into that. That would uh, go us, get us down a theory rabbit hole that we really don't want to deal with. But uh, instead, uh, the next topic you listed here, David, is morphemes. And I'm really interested in this, in your argument here, because I started out when the first time you mentioned sort of uh, for us morphemes being... Um, uh, problematic. Evil. I was a little skeptical, but then when I see your arguments, I do see some of the problems with them. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, where where to start with this? It's just it's become an obsession with me. <laughs> but so here's the deal. First, it is super 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 duper important to realize that. A morpheme is simply an analytical tool. Um, it does not necessarily represent anything real about language. It does if you basically agree with the analysis, um, but it's not actually there. So um, there are other ways to describe things. Um, I, 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 often the first reaction I get when I say, oh, you shouldn't be using morphemes when you conline is, you know, oh, what do you mean? Just like an analytic language? Uh, like, no, no, no. Morphemes aren't the same as affixes. Suffixes are suffixes. Prefixes are prefixes. Uh, morphemes are an entirely different thing. Um, and so the issue is not uh, necessarily with the... Uh, I want to say the issue isn't necessarily with the way that things are broken down. Let me go ahead, go ahead and... I'm sure most of our... Um, our um, 
listeners know this already, but I'll just define morphemes. A morpheme in linguistic analysis is basically the smallest part of a word that is meaningful. So the 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 sort of traditional thing about you do with um um morphemic analysis is say you are going to break down the word uh, uh let's say predispositions so you would break it down as uh sort of dispose is one morpheme you have pre is one morpheme meaning uh before or or some uh, pre-existing or something like that then uh shun is a nominalizing morpheme and s is the plural morpheme that's sort of that that's sort of what we're talking about with morphemes is uh sort of what units you use to sort of break down words and right back to david on why why that's problematic for conlangers Okay, so the issue with morphemes is that there is a, a there is a kind of fiction that you must accept in order for all morphemic analyses to work, and that is that um, meaning is specifically tied. Any specific meaning will be specifically tied to a string, to a phonological string. That has to work, or otherwise morphemes make no sense, um, and you simply can't have a morphemic analysis. Mm-hmm. So. In, the, in a standard analysis of something like cats, the S means plural, and cat means cat. You combine cat and S to get cats. You combine the meaning of cat with the meaning plural to get the meaning of more than one cat. Um, immediately, uh, something, an analysis like this runs into problems when you look at a word like geese. Um, obviously, geese is the plural of, glu- of goose, if you want to count up meanings, there has to there have to be two meanings in there. One, the meaning of goose, just as the being, and then the meaning of more than one. Um, and then it becomes a question, well, how do you break this down? Um, and that's when uh, things started to go awry. Uh, obviously, there's a difference between goose and geese. Uh, there's a vowel change. And that was often represented by what is known as a zero morpheme which is uh, presented as a kind of a, an invisible suffix that has the meaning that you want that shows or that demonstrates that, uh, you know, you've added something to something else. Um, and then the problem is you've tried to affect some sort of a change in the previous. Now, um, there are ways to handle issues like that. So there's a way to handle, for example, the fact that, you know, fish is one plural of fish. You could just say that there's an invisible suffix on the, the plural version of fish, and it has that plural meaning in there. With geese and goose, you can say there's a, an invisible suffix that has the plural meaning, and it's a magical uh, invisible suffix that also changes the previous vowel. Um, and it and only does so in a very specific way, so it doesn't change moose to meese. That's, uh, that's a, you know, a different suffix goes on there. Uh, you can handle the particulars like that. What you cannot handle... Is um, is things like the word news. So new news, the word uh, you know means you know like issues of the day or whatever. It has it's broken down into morphemically uh, the morpheme new and the plural morpheme s. It's just the way it works. Um, but that's mm-hmm. not what the meaning is. 
And in fact, new isn't even a noun. Um, okay. Yeah. But, but they, so, uh, I, so then right then you're presented with a problem, which is that how did you add this plural suffix to an adjective and get a singular noun, kind of mass noun that has a meaning that's not related to plural or new in any, um, in any standard way? Now, obviously, you can, uh-huh. we, we can figure out between ourselves how this word came to be. You know, something that's new, right, is something that you don't know. And news is basically something you don't know. It's a lot of things that are new, right? Um, you know, you, yeah. you, can, you can figure out historically how these things came about. Uh, but the issue with morphemic analysis is that um, meaning is supposed to be combinatorial. Um, and just like uh, segments are combinatorial. Yeah. And, so it, and it morphemes, morphemes are uh, synchronic specifically. So... The yes. historical explanations just get thrown out anyway. So, right, and so uh, usually what would happen here is that with news you would just say it's a single morphing, and then you'd be done with it, uh, yeah. which is un- which is unfortunate uh, for a conlinger, um, uh, not necessarily for linguistic analysis. Uh, there are parts yeah. where it becomes difficult. So, for example, we have the word uh, emergency. Uh, that's more easily broken down so that you can see we actually have the words emerge and emergence um, and then we have emergency uh, suddenly it feels it feels wrong to say that that word is monomorphemic which is what you're forced to do because you can't combine emerge and ins and e and get our meaning of emergency it simply can't be done um, the way that you can do it with um, you know uh, uh, dispose and disposition, right? Mm. Right. Uh, I wonder if emergency and, and um, emerge emerge have anything like urgent and urgency. If there are any sort of derivational paradigm in there? <laughs> no, I don't. I, don't I was even so. wrong That's with my cool. example. I should I should have because dispose you can even break down. But anyway, That's, moving that, on. Well, that's the thing. You can break down dispose, but uh, only historically. Right. That's it, true. It, it's something that you have to treat as monomorphemic. Just like you can break emerge down mm-hmm. into E and merge, uh, but that's historical. So that one is, so emerge is, you know, um, uncontroversially in a morphemic analysis, monomorphemic. Yeah. Emergency is controversially monomorphemic, or even more controversially has three morphemes in it. Um, and there's simply no way to reconcile it. Um, so now, like, like, like George says, we're not going to be spending time arguing if this is something that's good for linguistics or not. Uh, it has its uses, and it has its detractors, and it has its proponents. So we'll let them have it out. Um, for conlanging, the problem is um, a lot of times what I see when I look at just uh, new languages, new conlangs, uh, when I come to the morphology section, when I come to the lexicon, it's simply a laundry list of morphemes. And I mean morphemes in the linguistic sense. Every single unit is discrete, whether it's a lexeme or an affix, and mm-hmm. it all has a very specific. They all have very specific meanings, and so it basically it looks like um, uh, it, it just it looks like English if there were no metaphorical meaning. Uh, for example, in something like emergency or news. Um, and ultimately what it produces is something rather unsatisfying. Uh, it's basically like a, a, a bunch, all the languages are pretty much the same that use this as a base. 
And furthermore, if you take this if you take this really seriously, it becomes very difficult to produce words uh, like emergency. Um, and this is just even working within the lexicon, uh, right? Um, if you if you take it out to inflectional morphology, uh, there there are other things that become very difficult to do. Um, so I, I have uh, just a, a quick example. Um, I actually should have done this with. Uh, Men. Now that I think about it, <laughs> even though there is there's some distinction. Okay, let's do it. Okay, so in Hawaiian, uh, the word for man is uh, kanaka, uh, uh-huh. and then the the plural is actually kanaka. Uh, it, it's uh, it's got a it has a it has a what call it? It switches the tense, not the tense. What do you call it? It switches the stress. Stretch. Stress. The emphasis. No God! It, it <laughs> no, the stress. It switches yeah, the stress no. from from uh, penultimate to the first syllable. Um, there's also another plural for man, which is kane, um, which has a long vowel in it. Uh, and you know, it, it's obviously it's one of those things that's obviously related historically in some way, but it's not obvious at this stage um, how it is because you know the the the, the singular is kanaka, and then there's this plural that's kane. Um, but uh, more importantly, it's really difficult to produce um, suppletive uh, pairs like this that aren't completely off the wall. Um, it's much easier to just say there's a plural suffix and it applies to everything. Yeah. Uh, but by and large, that type of regular morphology is something you only see with uh, new vocabulary. Or, or, you know, vocabulary that isn't old. The older vocabulary, that's where it retains some of that irregularity, which is really hard to produce if you are kind of uh, thinking of your language as a synchronic um, system that you're describing with a series of morphemes. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, I've got tons of examples. But anyway, uh, um, I don't know. Do you... Uh, do you have, do you have I, any I'm, comments at this point? <gasps> uh, I, I, I will say I fell a little bit victim to this in Ayurio, especially in earlier versions. Mm-hmm. But um, if you look at Ayurio now, one thing you notice is that there are no bare forms for nouns, adjectives, or verbs. They all have inflection they, they they all must have certain inflections, including the the noun must be marked for absolutive, which is a little weird. Um, or it's actually nominative, but uh, it functions as an absolutive or a nominative, depending. But anyway, yeah, I had this idea of I had I had the noun root and the a uh, a case suffix, and then. Uh, it was actually not entirely morpheme, morpheme, because I have, um, plural suffixes that also, or number suffixes that also carry gender information. So, that kind of, you know, that is a, an example of how you, it sort of will, when you're thinking in terms of morphemes, it will bias you towards agglutinative languages a little bit. Um, I really like your example, your other example, though, David, of, um, Spanish future tense. Um, oh, yeah. 
Yeah, can I go over that, or you want to go over that, or? Uh, no, you go. You uh, go ahead. So, in Spanish, there is a dedicated future tense that is formed by adding something to the inf- infinitive form of the verb. Right. So, uh, you have. It depends on uh, uh, person and number agreement. So you have yo cantaré, tú cantarás, él cantará, and this is really weird when you look at it in terms of morphemes because uh, you're trying to analyze it and you say, okay, um, exactly how does the future tense have the um, the this other in, infinite meaning when clearly these are these are finite forms. These are not right. infinite forms of, ver- of the verb. I think, I think that's a problem that a lot of my students ran into as well when they were learning this. They were like, wait a minute, why does the future have the infinitive? Or, for example, with the nosotros form, they'd be like, wait a minute, it's not masculine and plural, so why does it have os on the end? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, well, actually, um, yeah, and both of those actually, when you look at them historically, make sense. So, in uh, historically, yeah, but yeah, in, in the uh, in the in the the Spanish, uh, what happened was you had a construction with the infinitive plus haber that meant. Oh, did it mean future initially, or was it different meaning? No, it know. was it was obligation. Um, okay. Uh, there, there is there is a competing theory that it was an obligation, that it was a kind of future, uh, but essentially, you could think of it as like you know, I have to do this. In fact, we have it in the present tense in English. I have to do X. Uh, it means obligation, but yeah, it came to mean the future tense in Spanish. So basically, the idea that that it is is somehow this the uh the aver form got just stuck onto the verb and that became the future yo cantar he become comes cantare so um that you know that's sort of an example of something you would never come up with just thinking of morphemes because you wouldn't think of adding something to another form of the verb in order to make a new form of the verb. And it's really sort of a beautiful sort of illustration of uh, where this may or may not be a real thing. This may or may not be a, a good way to analyze languages, but it definitely has its limitations when you are trying to make a language. Right. Um, sorry, I got a question about uh, cat food via text. But um, I've got a... Uh, I have another uh, another example. I was I was thinking of this one, but um, I, I couldn't find it until now. But now I, I've got it in front of me. That, that's another uh, really nice example. So, um, and then I'll I'll summarize afterwards. But uh, a really nice one to look at is the um, is the uh, what you call it the in the nominal inflectional system of Estonian. Uh, so uh-huh. es- Estonian uh, does uh, two things that are very interesting. Uh, one, there are basically two stems in Estonian uh, nouns, um, and I'm just working with an easy one here that they have on Wikipedia. This one doesn't even involve the overlong vowels and overlong consonants, but um, there's the nominative singular stem and the uh, genitive stem, uh, and then also the uh, I'm sorry, there's the nominative uh, singular stem, the genitive stem. And then the, uh, I, I want to say, is it the genitive plural stem? 
or the partitive singular? No, it's the genitive plural. I'm sorry. So there's the nominative singular stem, the genitive singular stem, and the genitive plural stem. Each of them are used to form different things. Obviously, the nominative stem is in all of these um, because that's just the way it works. Uh, so ilus. Uh, the genitive, you add an a, ilusa. The rest of the cases are built off of one of these stems. So the partitive is built off the genitive. You add a T to the genitive, so ilusat is the partitive. Um, the genitive plural is built off the partitive singular. That was it. The genitive plural is built off the partitive singular. And so you have ilusate um, for some reason. So the A is plural. And the, if you're wondering what the nominative plural is, it's ilusad. It's totally different. And the partitive plural is ilusaid. It's totally different. Um, then you use this genitive plural stem to form all of the plural cases. The illative, inessive, elative, olative, adessive, and ablative. All of them are formed off of the genitive plural stem. And then for the singular cases, all of them are formed off of the genitive singular stem. Um, so that's one interesting thing. Now here's the other interesting thing. If you add adjectives into the mix, uh, this is what happens. Uh, first, uh, for the nominative through the um, translative cases, okay, <laughs> this is the first ten cases, um, the noun is changed. So the ending of the noun is changed to reflect the case, and the adjective agrees with it. Mm-hmm. For the bottom four cases, the terminative, the essive, the obessive, and the committative, um, you just use the genitive. So, um, so the terminative form of the noun with an adjective is the genitive singular and the singular, the genitive plural and the plural, and then the adjective takes a special case form. But only for those four cases. So only for those four cases um, will you see um, important inflection for the noun on the adjective. And, of course, the adjective, if it isn't there, then it goes on the noun. Um, completely, completely wild. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, oh, anyway, oh, yeah, yeah. So the, so the takeaway from this is that, uh, yeah, obviously, so what's happening here is that uh, languages like to make use of Uh, of different parts. So not necessarily just your nominative singular if you're talking about a noun. It it takes advantage of some of the other built-up parts of a word and uses them to build other parts. Um, Usually there's a historical explanation for this, which is why, you know, it's important for conlangers to pay attention to this. So like uh, with, I think for all of these cases, for example, in Estonian, uh, you know, it's not an accident that it's the genitive that is the stem. Because it originally probably came from, like, you know, um, to the inside of noun. But now it's all, yeah. you know, conflated. Um, so uh, oh, that was the one takeaway. The other takeaway is that um, if you start to look at things uh, paradigmatically, uh, like even in a noun paradigm, different mm-hmm. things can happen if different words are involved. Uh, and so it's like, you know, with a, a purely uh, starting just with morphemes, like, how could you possibly guess that in four of the 14 cases of Estonian, adding an adjective into the mix would crucially change the inflection of the noun? Um, it, it, it's something that, that you know, it's, it can't be captured with morphemes. Um, and so if you just start with them, it seems to me that, this, based on my experience, you are less likely to come up with um, strategies like these, which other languages use uh, in abundance. I think yeah. it seems kind of like um, using the paradigm is like trying to 
you know, if you're calling a picture and you look at the whole, whole thing and you see how all the different parts relate with one another. But if you're just going bit by bit, it looks like almost you're looking at just one maybe square inch and trying to comp with that part, and it's very much discontinuous, and it doesn't make the relations very clear. Right. Yeah, actually, it's a really good analogy. So, yes. Uh, what, now, David, you you are, I guess we kind of got into paradigms a little bit, but you suggest sort of paradigms as an alternate tool um, for making these things, and the whole point of the paradigms is you just make a chart and right. you make, yeah. And it doesn't matter if you use inflections or particles or, um, or even build these strings of, of things going on. You just make a chart. The only thing about paradigms, it's still a framework and you could still right. sort of end up thinking that Oh, I've got to have a unique form for each slot, which you don't have to do. You mm-hmm. could languages have, don't do it. In fact, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could you could even um, you know selectively make irregular nouns that uh, have certain mergers that other nouns don't have, and that's another thing that you can think of uh, historically as well. Um, but it does look like a little bit of an easier tool, uh, a, a little bit of a better tool to use. Um, right. Um, now, oh, I just have ahead. one quick question. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we're getting a little long on this, but um, with paradigms, I know in certain languages like Latin had different conjugation patterns or declension patterns based on what type of paradigm it followed. In Spanish, I think we can see this with like maybe AR verbs, ER verbs, IR verbs, or Latin if it's first declension, second declension. Um, are those often just arbitrary or the uh, phonological driven. I haven't studied any language that doesn't really have that. It's either been it has declension patterns or it doesn't. So um, any comments on that? Well, uh, that's that's kind of the thing with paradigms. Um, really, I think the, uh, the key uh, top-level fact to take away from it is that um, all that the paradigm is doing is it's, um, it's, it's showing you know, which groups of segments pattern more with each other than they do with what comes uh, to the left or right of them ordinarily, right? So that's why with, uh, you know, with nouns in English, for example, I mean, the only things that we really see are uh, singular, plural, and possessive um, because those are the things, uh, those items go together more than, say, you know, like a noun and an adjective that comes before it or a noun and a verb that comes after it, right? Um, So what... What happens with these paradigms is that they will be language specific, mm-hmm. um, and um, and it seems like languages kind of like to arrange things uh, in paradigm form. Yeah. Uh, it, it'll just be different language by language. So for uh, and and how they get filled out will be different. So for example, um, in English, it's really important to have this distinction between past tense, uh, perfect tense, perfect progressive, uh, <laughs> pa- past progressive. Um, yeah. it, uh, these forms are going to be filled up with uh, separate words. So it's like, you know, I, you know, I ate versus I was eating versus I have eaten versus I have been eating. Um, but those types of distinctions aren't going to be as important for a language that just distinguishes um, imperfect from perfect. Yeah. Uh, or, or rather... 
they will uh, make those kind of distinctions in a way, but they will just be uninteresting because, like, you know, the, um, the simple past will be identical to the uh, present perfect that we have in English, yeah. uh, shall yeah. we say. So it just won't look very interesting. Uh, the mm-hmm. language itself will probably, it, it, you know, it, it, the language is going to recommend or it seems to work in such a way that it sets up these paradigms. Mm-hmm. Which is why, you know, like in German with nouns, you have singular and plural and nominative, accusative, dative, and genitive. And it doesn't mean that it can't express like, you know, uh, you know, like uh, Finnish has, you know, or, or Estonian has 14 noun cases. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't translate anything that's in those extra noun cases into German. It just means that they w- it won't look as interesting. They won't pattern together as closely um, as the words do in Finnish. I'm sorry, in oh, Estonian, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's why the uh, the noun paradigm only has the two numbers and the four um, and the four cases. Uh, it's kind of like you know with uh, with the dual number. Like mm-hmm. you could say that every single language has a dual number. It's just that in English, it's not very interesting. Uh, outside of the word both, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know, you or just, like or gender even. I know like right. Arabic and Russian in the past tense they conjugate for gender, but English gender is not shown. Doesn't it doesn't reflect that in your conjugation? Right. In, in fact, even in even in second person pronouns, so it's like you know, what's the second person plural feminine pronoun in English? You. <laughs> it's like that's not all this. All this points back to the thing that I said in the first place, which was make the language then analyze it, because well, yes. different analyses will work better for different languages. Um, you know, I I was thinking before, you know, morphemes work work really really well. If you're analyzing Chinese, you can't actually necessarily build Chinese with morphemes because it has some oddities like um, compounding synonyms and stuff, which because Chinese compounding was not about so much building meanings from smaller units as it was uh, a strategy to uh, to deal with homophones. Mm-hmm. So, but something, of, something that is in itself very interesting, by the way, when it comes to morphemic analysis. Anyway, keep going. So, you know, you can build thing, build things, and then analyze them and see about what what best makes clear when you're writing your actual grammar what you've already done. One thing I'm going to refer back to one of my own languages. One thing that. Uh, a, a small little bit that I think I did right. You can't, guys can judge me as you will. Um, but I, as I was making words in Iorio, I was adding just a suffix da to verbs just sort of haphazardly, not really paying attention to what it meant or what, what purpose it served. And I thought, oh, I'll just figure it out later. I had some, vague idea that it had to do with transitivity. Later on, I was writing the grammar and I analyzed it and it turns out, you can look at the grammar to see what it is, but it basically has like two different, it, it can have like two different, um, com- combinational meanings, sort of basic morphemic meanings. And also there's some words that I just looked at. I'm like, okay. It made sense in the past, but the, 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 the da form has drifted since then, and now it's just a different lexeme. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, part of the fun. And it's also something that um, I, I know we plugged this before, but I'm going to plug it again, that as you translate more text, as you work with you know, either doing translation or writing original stuff, as you use your language more, uh, these things are going to come out. Um, and it, yeah. just, it, it makes it fuller, it makes it more interesting, it makes it more realistic. It seems like this uh, paradigm work really lightens your load a lot. Uh, it does. It does, and it's kind of like uh, it, it's almost like you sit down and you think about, well, what 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 am I going to want to be like crucially or grammatically important in this mm-hmm. language? You know, what do I want to what do I want to reflect? And then it's like you know, almost uh, setting up mm-hmm. a paradigm itself is um, it's it's kind of like a, a really interesting creative act. Uh, and then you know, when it comes down to filling it in, it, it you know, it's uh, it takes on a new level, but, um, you know, it's, if you, for, for me, it works. I'll say that for, for me, it works. Um, I've been, I've been doing it now for at least, uh, seven, seven years. Uh, seems, and I've been pleased uh-huh. with the results. Okay. Well, I was just quickly going to say, it seems like if you try to do it from the morpheme side, it's almost like you're trying to build a machine, but you're trying to, trying to design every cog first and then put it all in there to make it all work out perfectly. Whereas if you just look at the whole thing and you're like, okay, I need this piece on the right to move, and if I put that with the piece on the left and just work with it as basically a nice set, you can see it working together better. Yeah. Um, One last thing I was going to mention is even when um, you are talking about these cases and these um, and, you know, names of cases, names of aspects and, and stuff, even that, to some extent, is, it's not really a framework, but it is sort of, yep. you're using established knowledge, and it's important to do translation and see how your cases and how your uh, moods are, are used. One thing that, um, well, David, with Dothraki, if mm-hmm. you just sat with all your cases and just used your, you just said, okay, this is the, the, the case is called this and this is what the, the standard definition of that case is and just went that way. You would not have come up with your awesome, uh, idea of the case marking determining like the, whether an action was completed or, or just partially done. Right. Yeah, um, and I and thank you for bringing that up because that's another point. I, I've actually seen on the conling list a lot of people where it's like you know, this uh, really struggling is like, oh, I don't know what to call this case, and it's like, who cares? <laughs> call it anything you it just, want. Uh, it, it, it just the, needs the a point name. Is how does it work? Yeah, it just needs a name, <laughs> and then it's the question is how does it work? In fact, yeah. at the beginning, you could even just call them case A, B, C, and D if you want. And then after you're, after you're done and you've started to realize, you start to work with the case and see how it works, you know, in translation, then you can see what label fits the best if you want. Um, but, but even so it's like, there's, yeah, there, there's so many things. It just look at a dative case, uh, in the in natural languages, the world over and see all of the things that it can do. There are going to be things that it has in common, but it's like there are going to be quirky uses of a dative case in one language that will not be the same quirky uh, aberrant uses of the dative case in another language. You know? Yeah. Um, dative, and, is, dative is a big one for that one. 
but yeah, right. all of the, anything. Um, that's something that sort of happened to me with, with moods for Iorio is I have like five moods, but after looking at them, I realized, uh, I just had like the standard definitions. And then as I got to translating and stuff, I realized I had to figure out, okay, how does mood interact with tense? And then I also made these, like, um, these, uh, auxiliaries. And I thought, okay, how does, how does the mood interact with that? And the meanings are not necessarily compositional. They're just sort of like this, this and this ended up being used for this purpose. That's the kind of thing that you need to be doing and just don't don't worry about what the the labels mean. Just stick uh, a label on there that sort of kind of covers the core meaning of it and go from there. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, man. Good, good stuff. Oh, by the way, here's another another random factoid of, of morphology being used to do stuff that it wasn't intended to. In Egypt, there's a really common uh, plural suffix, ooh. Uh, it's written with a W now because it was also a W. So that you could have per, which means house, and peru, that means um, houses. But if you attach it to adjectives, you get a nominalization. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but the, the, the thing is, uh, adjectives also agree with nouns in number. So if you'd, you'd say, you know, per nefer means uh, like a beautiful house, and uh, peru nefru means beautiful houses. But nefru by itself is a noun, and it means perfection. Hmm. Um, and they did that with all kinds, with all kinds of uh, adjectives. Uh, fun stuff. Yeah, Good old cool. language. Language never fails to disappoint. I found. Never fails. Language is awesome. Holy shit! No, I just said. Oh, whoops. Uh, sorry. No, yeah. I said the wrong thing. Language never fails to do amaze? the opposite of disappoint. Never fails to amaze. <laughs> never fails to amaze. Sure. How did I do that? awesome oh my goodness (laughs) I just thought one thing and said the opposite right on getting old these bones is getting old (laughs) oh (laughs) seriously David you're going to play the old card now yeah who's the oldest of three I mean that's not topic oh, whatever no i mean obviously me obviously i'm the oldest of yeah they, 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 i take david's older than us so, um yeah you're both in your 20s right by a little bit yeah 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 I'm 31 oh wow 31. you are old oh. yes yes sir but oh. you look like you're about 14 that's right i'm gorgeous like a like a young girl <laughs> just uh, if you if you get close though you can't see and this is true i do have gray hairs um and actually a couple of white hairs which is really alarming um so you know just stay at a distance and you know admire me i'm sure that one day in the future <laughs> i'm going to go from looking young to instantly looking like you know 70 or 80 or 90 and it's going to happen overnight yes. you know uh some pe- some people are like that. You know who's like that? I I, I know you guys are, are, are. I don't know if you're baseball fans, but you, fans. But you know uh, Chipper Jones. Uh, no. Okay. Well, you gotta you gotta look at Chipper Jones. At least older pictures of Chipper Jones. He came in looking like a fresh faced kid, kind of like a cowboy. He looked like he should have been uh, like uh, chewing on a piece of uh, straw or something. 
you know, like, mister, you trespassing on my dirt farm. I don't know. He had that look to him. Uh, he was just, he's a great guy. And he's a great baseball player. He's actually playing his final year right now. He made it to the uh, All-Star game. And um, so, you know, I, since it was his final year, I decided, you know, I'd just stop in on a few of his games because I remember when he came into the league. And I looked at his face, and it was just, oh, my God, he's old now. It's just suddenly it happened overnight. He was young for like the first 15 seasons of his career. Today he is old, and you can see it in his face. And I was, oh, my goodness, that was a moment for me. That was a moment for me. You're going to have one, too, later on in y'all's lives. But uh, (laughs) that was one of mine. Mm. (laughs) Ah, dear. Um, so we've wandered a little so, bit from our discussion. That's uh, well. I think uh, we so, need to sort of wrap up. I know, but um, just one quick yeah. thing that I know we were uh, we kind of glazed over a little bit. Mm-hmm. But um, when we were talking about the paradigms, I see in here you mentioned the bear, and you say there's nothing in the framework that prevents a paradigm like core, and then for accusative singular menu livaste, and then for the dative singular korach, and then yeah. just you have crazy things there. Is that another pitfall of this if you go off the yes. deep end? Yes, and that was yeah. uh, that was one of the things I realized when I was working in this framework. Uh, and, you know, as I started to actually work with it, uh, especially Conlang, uh, with Harry Bachner's framework in, framework in particular, I was like, oh, wait a minute. This makes suppletion looks like it should look like it should be, you know, universally common. <laughs> and, and it's not. Yeah. You know, suppletion is obviously the exception rather than the rule. Um, if you want to see... Um, uh, Kind of like my realization of this when I was playing with it was I, I wrote a Specgram article about it. So if you just type systematic suppletion into Google, uh, you'll, you'll see I, I set up this fake language that has like, you know, like three numbers and like 17 cases. And they all are completely combinatorial except for the elative dual, which is suppletive. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's suppleted for, for every single word. So it's completely predictable that you will not be able to predict what the elective duel will be. <laughs> that was my uh, fun. Uh, wow. That's a good one. Oh, yeah, also, that's... by the way, uh, just to, just to, I, I'm going to try to do this example quick because I know we're running along, but if you're, if you're yeah. kind of at a loss, you don't know, you're like, okay, I don't want to use morphemes, but I don't know what to do. Like, how do you come up with this stuff? Um, I just want to give you a very short example of just how uh, historically these things come to be. If you just think about our English future tense, all right? So we have will and everything, whatever. But at some point in time in the very distant past, we had expressions like, you know, I go to London and I go to London to sell wool, shall we say. At some point in time later, you could just say, I go to sell wool, literally meaning I am on this road, like, you know, why are you, know, why are you, why are you traveling? Well, I am going to sell wool, you know, in London, if you want to add it. Uh, that's the purpose of your traveling. Somehow people took that and then made the leap that, well, if you go to sell wool, it means you're going to sell wool at some point in time in the future. And so then it became a, a kind of a little optional future. Hmm. So, you know, I, yeah. go, I, I go to sell wool. Right. Then uh, separately, we had our, of course, um, uh, the progressive becoming the new uh, present. So that uh, now you no longer say, you know, uh, you know, hi, George, what do you? Uh, I conling at present. No. <laughs> say, like, what are you doing? I'm conling. Um, so then we have, you know, I am going to sell wool. 
Uh, and then this underwent some phonological reduction so that, you know, first uh, I am became I'm, so I'm going to sell wool. And then we had another further little reduction. So you could say I'm going to sell wool. And then two had its own reduction from two to ta. And then that I'm going to sell wool kind of had its own reduction so that you have I'm going to sell wool. And that um, it kind of reduced even further so that you didn't have to say I'm going to sell wool. You could say I'm going to sell wool. And then that itself has reduced now so that you have, I'm a cell wool. <laughs> yes. And it's in a future certain, tense. In certain, and not only, yeah, yeah, and not only that, you could take it to the other pronouns and you could say, you know, I'm a cell wool, he's a cell wool, you're a cell wool, we're a cell wool, right? And so if, you, if we didn't have, if we weren't so widely literate, you know, if, we, if everybody didn't read and write and, you know, we didn't have access to this stuff, you could see how eventually, you know, you hear somebody speaking this way and pretty soon you think, well, that's just the way you do it. And so what started um, out as a super long phrase becomes a series of suffixes. And not only that, suffixes that vary whether they've been added to a consonant final word or a vowel final word uh, with a, what looks like an epithetic N, but in fact it just came from the N from going or gonna, right? And so yeah. that's the type of stuff that produces... Uh, a lot of our morphology. Um, yeah. The only difference between now and then was that back then we weren't all writing and reading. I, I really think that's the difference, but that's not uncontroversial. So. Yeah, that's a, well, that again, gets a little bit into theory of, you know, right. uh, whether or not uh, writing uh, literacy uh, has, what, what effect literacy has on language, if any, and stuff. Grain so, of salt. Grain of salt. Yeah. Yeah, so we 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 don't want to necessarily get into that argument, but um, that I think is a good note to leave off on, sort oh. of. Um, and I definitely think the historical approach is important. I noticed that um, I noticed that once when I just doing the barest minimum sort of historical thing of running Iorio through sound changes and I sort of even ran the the whole sort of uh noun and verb paradigms I'd already created through um through sound changes. That made me look and say, Oh, I would never have done this by myself. And um and I know that's even just like the barest, simplest thing you can do when you also could also just like start glomming words together and stuff. So, uh, or losing, losing suffixes and stuff entirely. But I think that is, I'm, I'm going to stop my rambling now and I'm going to ask David, do you have any final words of wisdom? <laughs> okay. Mike. Um, well, I think, David, that was the very, very, very wise words of wisdom. Um, you know, I would, he, he said a lot right there. Um, I don't know if I can really build on that, so uh, I'll go totally different direction. But um, paradigms are awesome. Uh, you know, when he first told me about this, uh, about, you know, just like, let go of, of morphemes, I was like, what? What do you mean? What, what do you have? There are no morphemes. <laughs> and right, I was right. very much stuck in my little box, but I realized that even when I learned Spanish, we memorized them in paradigm form. And even when we were, um, we didn't learn, okay, 
AS is the U form, and then the next week we learn, you know, right. A is the this. You learn it in paradigms. So building off of that, um, I'd say, you know, definitely just don't be afraid. It, it sounds scary, but it's really not that bad. Just it's it's awesome. And um of course that always remember I'm not sure if my accent's off, but I'll try with that. You you keep working on it, but that was pretty good for us. I'm going to I'll try. I'm going to break a little bit and add a little bit my own words of wisdom first. Mm-hmm. My 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 takeaway from this thing is um from this one at least the thing that I'm going to pull out and set, set, tell everybody to do is make your language even like uh, I mean and even to the point of doing some translations before you start analyzing it and, and formalizing things that See? will mm-hmm. uh, the, there's there's some there's some drawbacks to doing it that way uh, you, you have to be careful not to be we could do a whole episode on that. Uh, relaxing, but I think that is one sort of mini technique that you can help do to help avoid some of the problems we've had. We've been discussing. But other than that, I'm just going to say happy Conlang. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a conlang or natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device. <laughs>